This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 115th edition of the program. Today is October 19th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of our latest Patreon and PayPal signups. So this week, we have Basil Angelopoulos, Buck Smith, Chris Yonke, Dana Fairbanks, Jacob Kobide, James Day, Jay Stage, Jean-Luc Ofoff, Jewel Pullen, John Owen, John Turcati, Kevin Hanley, Marie Crow, Nicholas S. Mojica, Shaista Sheik, and Yvonne Jones. So thank you so much for your generosity and your kindness and for helping this show to not just survive, but also to thrive. If you'd also like to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com support or visit patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. And of course, I apologize to anyone whose name I mispronounced because I'm sure I butchered all of them. <laughs> so I, I apologize for that. But look, my last name is Figueredo. I get that all the time. So getting into the episode on today's show, first, I'll talk about a new executive order from Donald Trump that might be the beginning of the end for the Affordable Care Act. Also, on the subject of Donald Trump, he pledges to defend evangelicals from being triggered this Christmas. I'll tell you what he's doing, and I'll also talk about his feud with John McCain and how he represents the Republican Party perfectly. Now, additionally, I'll discuss FCC Chairman Ajit Pai's response to Trump's attack on the freedom of the press and what Bernie Sanders had to say about the Republicans' new budget. Also in this episode, Pokemon Go was apparently used by the Russians to meddle in U.S. affairs. I'll also talk about Hillary Clinton's visit to Great Britain, Dick Durbin's fear of Democrats becoming too liberal, whether or not Tom Perez will be ousted from his job at the DNC, an early 2020 Democratic primary poll, how corporate Democrats are currently being wined and dined by Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, I'll talk about one televangelist's response to criticism and how Hillary Clinton supporters reacted to the news that Bernie Sanders would be speaking at the Women's March. Finally, in this episode, I'll talk about a horrific attack in Mogadishu. So all these topics will be addressed in this episode. Let's go ahead and jump right in. Enjoy the show. After trying multiple times to pass some form of legislation that would repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, President Donald Trump recently announced that since he's unable to get it done through Congress, he would be unilaterally dismantling the Affordable Care Act via executive order. In a few moments, I will sign an executive order taking the first steps to providing millions of Americans with Obamacare relief. It directs the Department of Health and Human Services, the Treasury, and the Department of Labor to take action to increase competition, increase choice, and increase access to lower-priced, high-quality health care options. And they will have so many options. This will cost the United States government virtually nothing. And people will have great, great health care. And when I say people, I mean by the millions and millions. 
Now, what he's telling you about this executive order might sound nice at face value, but really what's happening here is he's allowing insurance companies to rip you off even more than they've already been ripping you off. So according to Jonathan Cohn of the Huffington Post, he explains that the order will primarily affect small businesses and people who buy private coverage on their own rather than through employers. It could lead the kind of transformation that, according to experts, GOP repeal bills would unleash if one of them were to become law. In particular, the new, less regulated insurance plans could provide an attractive alternative to consumers who don't expect to have large medical bills and who are frustrated with the high premiums they pay for policies today. At the same time, comprehensive coverage could become harder and eventually even impossible to find, especially for people with pre-existing conditions. But some parts of the order are likely to take effect more quickly. Perhaps the most consequential of those is a decision to end a rule that limited short-term insurance plans to no more than three months. The three-month limit came from the Obama administration, which worried the short-term plans would draw away consumers in relatively good health, causing state insurance markets to split in two. Taken together, the actions that Trump's Thursday order envisions could have precisely that result. And basically, what would have happened if Trump was able to pass some form of repeal and replace bill through Congress, it might just come to fruition with this executive order. Because what this order does is it begins chipping away at the Affordable Care Act, and that will have a snowball effect. Because healthcare, it's a very volatile industry. If you change one little thing, that could send shockwaves through the aggregate industry. And really what this order does is it opens the door to cheaper, less comprehensive healthcare plans that might seem like a really great deal to someone at first, but you'll find out just how much you're being taken advantage of when you actually get sick, because obviously these cheaper plans aren't going to cover much of anything. Now, his executive order also cuts off funding for advertising and outreach, making the already taxing process of finding healthcare even more difficult by reducing information available about it. So, as someone who criticized President Obama for using executive orders too much, I mean, for, for something like healthcare that affects one-sixth of the overall U.S. economy, to, to use an executive order here, it goes against everything he said when Obama was president. But he doesn't care. It doesn't matter if this makes him look like a hypocrite. This is Donald Trump we're talking about here. He's contradicted himself a million and one times, and this really is no different here. And he has an agenda. Repeal the Affordable Care Act so that way he can check off the box and say he did one thing that he promised he would do. Because certainly, getting the wall built on the southern border, it's proving to be a lot more difficult, practically and logistically, than he probably thought when he was running to be president. So if he could at least do this, then he could say, look, I, I came through on this promise. And I love the wording that he uses. He says that he's offering Obamacare relief. Well, what was Obamacare? Obamacare was an improvement to our healthcare system. Yes, Obamacare wasn't the end-all be-all, but it was an improvement. It did expand access. And yes, part of Obamacare was subsidizing health insurance plans. But the reason why Obamacare is failing is because, one, we don't have any cost controls in this country. And second of all, we don't have a public option. If Donald Trump really was concerned about providing the American people with affordable health care, then he would encourage Republicans and Democrats to come up with a public option because that will keep the costs down because it influences these private companies to compete with the government-run plan. And when a lot of people ultimately end up gravitating towards that public option, then that forces these private companies 
to actually become cheaper and stop ripping us off and offer coverage that's actually comprehensive and covers more. But with these plans here, people might think, oh, Trump is doing a great job because look, the cost of healthcare, it's coming down. But again, if access to healthcare is all you care about, then sure, this might be a great step for you. But if you really care about taking care of sick people, this will not do that. This is antithetical to that goal. Because just saying that you have healthcare, that means nothing if you actually get sick. Do you honestly think these cheaper plans will cover a really expensive surgery if you need it? Do you honestly think that you still won't risk going bankrupt if you have a medical emergency with these shitty, cheaper, skinny plans? Donald Trump is selling you a lemon. And what he's doing here, it's harmful. We might not see all the consequences right away, but certainly, you know, this is the beginning of the end of the Affordable Care Act. And this should be all the more reason to galvanize Democrats to fight harder than ever for Medicare for all, because that is the only way we're going to end this healthcare debate once and for all. President Donald Trump recently spoke to a crowd of evangelicals at the Value Voters Summit, and they were actually pretty receptive to what he had to say. Now, this is not necessarily the way it's gone for Trump before at the Values Voters Summit, because in 2015, which is, I believe, his first speech there, he was actually booed by some of the attendees, but for whatever reason this time, he seemed to have been able to capture their hearts. And the way he was able to do this is by finally mastering a political technique that has existed since the dawn of time. He pandered. We are stopping cold the attacks on Judeo-Christian values. Thank you. Thank you very much. And something I said so much during the last two years, but I'll say it again, as we approach the end of the year, you know, we're getting near that beautiful Christmas season that people don't talk about anymore. <laughs> they don't use the word Christmas because it's not politically correct. You go to department stores and they'll say Happy New Year and they'll say other things and it'll be red. They'll have it painted, but they don't say, well, guess what? We're saying Merry Christmas again. Well, thank God somebody's finally standing up for Christmas. <laughs> Did you hear the, <laughs> the loudness with which the crowd cheered when he said that? That was amazing to me. But look, Don, you're missing one of the most insidious attacks on Christmas. Starbucks cups. Do you realize that Starbucks wanted to take Christ and Christmas off of their brand new cups? That's why they're just plain red. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine being so deluded that you would think that whether or not people say Merry Christmas is a real issue. It's not a real issue because you're triggered if people say happy holidays, which is technically more correct since we're celebrating multiple holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and whatever you celebrate, Hanukkah. I mean, it, it's just more correct. It's not necessarily only politically correct. It's just more correct. But I mean, to get triggered over somebody saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas, 
What are you doing with your life? Clearly, you're neglecting some real issues that are actually affecting people. This affects no one with the exception of you and your feelings. But first of all, I mean, needless to say, this obviously isn't enforceable. The president <laughs> cannot compel people to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. And furthermore, this just really shows you how out of touch Donald Trump really is because he said here, we're getting near the beautiful Christmas season that people don't want to talk about anymore. Is that so? Is that really so? Because I don't know what universe you're living in, Donald Trump, because my department store that's near me, they're already putting out Christmas decorations. In fact, they started putting it out in early September. So to say that nobody talks about Christmas or that we're ignoring Christmas, that's just factually incorrect. And if you don't believe me, go to a department store and see if they have Christmas decorations out. I guarantee you that if they don't have them out already, they're at least clearing spots for them now. But Donald Trump also states here, we are stopping the attacks on Judeo-Christian values and, well, guess what? We're saying Merry Christmas again. Well, first of all, this assumes that Judeo-Christian values are under attack in this country, which they're not. But even if they were, isn't this inadvertently insulting to evangelicals? Because Trump is reducing the totality of their religion down to a fight about how we greet each other during the holiday season. That's really what he thinks you care about. I mean, if you're a Christian, don't you care about more important things? If so, wouldn't you be insulted by Trump's obvious ignorance about your religion? I mean, you would, you would think that that's the case, but apparently it's not the case because when he says, you know, well, guess what? We're saying Merry Christmas again. The crowd cheered. We're saying Merry Christmas again. Up is down, left is right. I don't know what's going on with the world, but apparently that's something they care about. Now, as someone who's worked in retail for years and years and years, I was never told by any of my employers to say Happy Holidays specifically and not say Merry Christmas. I usually just did it on my own accord because, again, it's more correct. We call it the holiday season because we're celebrating multiple holidays. But I noticed that for my coworkers, when they would say Merry Christmas, for the ones that did choose to say that, they would never receive any backlash. But for me, I received backlash from saying happy holidays. People were more offended that I said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. So the problem here is the opposite of what Donald Trump is making it out to be. I remember one guy said, oh, you don't have to say happy holidays to me. You could say Merry Christmas because it's Christmas. And, you know, he wasn't alone. There are multiple people that said that to me. Said that to me. So it People get more offended by saying happy holidays. So really, it's not that lefties are the triggered snowflakes because you said uh, Merry Christmas. That doesn't trigger us. We don't care. But it's the evangelicals, the right-wing SJWs or the social injustice warriors, the Trump flakes, that get triggered if you don't say Merry Christmas. I mean, talk about language police. They like to bemoan students on college campuses who like to shut down particular speakers, but look at who became the language police all of a sudden. The right. See, they're the ones who are trying to control free speech, yet simultaneously, anytime you could find an instance of a social justice warrior on the left trying to control free speech, then they'll speak out against them, but they never speak out against their own ranks. And this is what really frustrates me about people who like to rant against SJWs. Look, here's the thing. There's a lot of SJWs in this country, and the overwhelming majority of them are right-wingers. That's just, that's just a fact, because 
nobody cares about the verbiage that you use. We say happy holidays. One, because yeah, it's obviously more inclusive because we don't know what somebody celebrates or if they celebrate at all. But it's it's technically just more correct because we're celebrating multiple fucking holidays. I don't get why this is so difficult for people to understand. So um, I'm going to say happy holidays now specifically. I'm going to go out of my way to say happy holidays just to offend Trump flakes. I finally want to talk about something that I have been meaning to cover for a really long time. It's a phenomenon that has really started to get under my skin. And this is the increasing normalization of neoconservatives like George W. Bush by neoliberals. So to give you a couple of examples, George W. Bush was on The Ellen Show. People really love to share pictures of him hanging out with other former presidents. And George W. Bush melted everyone's hearts, I think, once people learned that he had a really close friendship with Michelle Obama. How sweet. Now, even in the world of memes, people really seem to have a newfangled appreciation for George W. Bush. So really, it seems as though now that we have Donald Trump, well, when you juxtapose Trump with Bush, I mean, the choice is clear. Isn't George W. Bush preferable? No, God, please, no, no. So, you know, when you look at it that way, neoliberals are trying to rehabilitate George W. Bush's image, and they're doing this as a means of criticizing Donald Trump indirectly. Because if we like George W. Bush again, when everyone hated him before, then that goes to show you just how bad Donald Trump really is. But the problem with this is in trying to criticize Donald Trump by normalizing someone like George W. Bush, you are propping up and legitimizing a warmonger who has the blood of hundreds of thousands of innocent lives on his hands. He is an objectively bad person, he is a war criminal, and he shouldn't be going on the Ellen Show right now. He should be in jail for the rest of his life for all the destruction he caused internationally. And that's not to say that Donald Trump isn't more impulsive, egotistical, and even more dumb than George W. Bush, but he is still preferable to George W. Bush, contrary to popular belief, because even if he may be following in the footsteps of his warmongering predecessors, well, if you're comparing body counts, there's really no contest. At this point, Donald Trump is still objectively better than George W. Bush by that measure. Donald Trump is proving to be a prototypical Republican, and by suggesting that he's somehow worse than other Republicans, you're giving the aggregate party a pass when they're still approving of the horrible things that he's doing. And really what Donald Trump does is he puts an ugly face on the horrible policies that Republicans have always had. So even though some of them might like to pretend as though they're outraged by his tweets, well, Donald Trump, he is externalizing the demons that already existed in the Republican Party, and they don't like facing their demons. The country doesn't like to acknowledge that the Republican Party really is as disgusting as Donald Trump makes them seem, but this has always been the case, and Donald Trump hasn't changed that. So, for example, Donald Trump tweeted out that we cannot keep FEMA, the military, and the first responders who have been amazing under the most difficult circumstances in Puerto Rico forever. And he also vocalized opposition to the military service there, saying, quote, they have to distribute the food to the people of the island, so what we've done is we now actually have military distributing food, something that they really shouldn't have to be doing. So Donald Trump doesn't think that the military should be used to help people because Donald Trump wants to use the military to kill people. And we know that because he ramped up drone strikes immediately when he was elected. 
We know that because he is continuously saber-rattling against Iran, and especially North Korea. But, in admitting here that he doesn't really want to keep FEMA in Puerto Rico forever, and he doesn't really want to help them, this is really no difference than Republicans. It was George W. Bush who allowed the people of New Orleans to be abandoned after Hurricane Katrina devastated Louisiana. So Donald Trump is just externalizing what Republicans actually feel. And when it comes to Mike Pence, Alex Loki of Business Insider explains in a New Yorker profile of Vice President Mike Pence, reporter Jane Mayer sheds light on the relationship between President Donald Trump and his second-in-command. Mayer framed the story titled The Danger of President Pence around the idea that despite growing support for Trump's impeachment, Pence's sometimes ultra-conservative views make that a dark prospect for the liberals who oppose Trump. Mayer reports that when the topic of rights for gay U.S. citizens came up, Trump pointed to Pence and said, don't ask that guy, he wants to hang them all. Now, is this something that is presidential that Donald Trump should be saying on the record right in front of a reporter? In fact, to a reporter? Well, of course it's not. Is it hyperbolic? Yes, I don't believe that Mike Pence wants to hang gay people, but really what Donald Trump is doing here in admitting Mike Pence's feelings about gay people, because clearly, you know, in saying that, he might not necessarily want to hang gay people, but Donald Trump knows, probably firsthand, that Mike Pence hates gay people, and he wants to harm gay people, and has policies that will harm gay people, and with, you know, uh, homosexuality and the LGBTQ movement, it's only recently that Republicans have been trying to attack LGBT rights in a more covert manner, but really, their feelings towards gay people never changed, and Donald Trump is exposing that firsthand. And when it comes to religiosity, well, according to a Salon report, when people met with Trump after stopping by Pence's office, Trump would ask them, did Mike make you pray? Now, he's saying this in a joking manner, basically poking fun at Mike Pence's religion. Now, yes, it may be the case that at face value, the Republican Party absolutely is the party of evangelical right-wingers and SJWs on the right, but... We have to acknowledge that the Republican Party, they're smarter than they let on in many cases. How many Republicans do you honestly think follow God? Is it really as much as uh, they like to make you think it is? Of course not. We see Ted Cruz liking tweets, pornographic tweets, mind you, jerking off to porn. We see family values politicians exposed what seems like every other fucking week. I mean, they don't care about religion. The Republican Party exploits religiosity in order to get that evangelical vote. Republicans don't give a damn about your religion. If you are an actual Christian evangelical, then you should be offended by all the policies that Republicans are promoting because it's antithetical to Christianity and I don't get how you can't see this. But in making fun of religion, Donald Trump is exposing the Republican Party's true feelings here. So in implying that the military should not be used to help people, in not caring about disasters and how they affect people of color in particular in this country, in making fun of religion. This isn't that big of a departure from the Republican Party. He represents the status quo. Donald Trump really is the prototypical Republican. This is exactly how they feel. They don't care about hurricanes. They don't care about the victims. They don't care about gay people. They don't care about your religion. And Donald Trump, 
again, he's just a face to, to the ideas that they've always had. And propping up George W. Bush just legitimizes so-called moderate Republicans and gives them more power and credibility. So if you want to attack Trump, then attack Trump. You should attack Trump and be very critical of him because he's a monster. But you don't have to legitimize George W. Bush to do that. George W. Bush is worse than Donald Trump thus far. And I don't even think you can argue that at this point. So don't give him more credibility in order to criticize Donald Trump. You don't have to do that. You can criticize Donald Trump because Donald Trump is the prototypical Republican that doesn't care about the American people and wants to harm the American people. So last week on the podcast, I talked about how Donald Trump is basically the Regina George of American politics because he's just a bully. Now, the thing about Regina George and other bullies is that every once in a while, someone will come along to stand up to them. And this week, John McCain decided to be that person, Katie, in this instance, if we're sticking in the realm of Mean Girls references, <laughs> decided, <laughs> terrible, John McCain decided to stand up to Donald Trump. So according to Dan Merica of CNN, McCain, while accepting the Liberty Medal in Philadelphia on Monday night, warned the United States against turning toward half-baked, spurious nationalism cooked up by people who would rather find scapegoats than solve problems. Trump told Chris Plant of The Chris Plant Show on Tuesday that he heard the criticism and warned McCain to be careful. Yeah, well, I hear it. And people have to be careful because at some point I fight back, Trump said. I'm being very nice. I'm being very, very nice. But at some point I fight back and it won't be pretty. So you're saying that your comments could get ugly from time to time, Donald Trump? Is that what you're saying? Because... That's not going to be very shocking for us to see, given that you make out these obnoxious tweets on a daily basis. So you're not going to shock anyone if you get ugly with John McCain. I mean, you already attacked him before because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Nobody's going to be surprised with anything that you have to say. But, it, you know, John McCain here, in warning Americans against half-baked, spurious nationalism cooked up by people who would rather find scapegoats than solve problems... This is a criticism that I absolutely commend John McCain for. I typically don't compliment John McCain because he is diametrically opposed to everything I stand for. But in this instance, credit where credit is due. He's saying something that's true about Donald Trump. Now, again, I'm talking about Republican infighting because this is incredibly important. Not only does it handicap Donald Trump's ability to pass the Republican Party's harmful agenda, but this really gives liberals the opportunity to push our agenda while Republicans are distracted by infighting. And another reason why this is important is because right now, Republicans, they not only hold all branches of government, but they have an advantage over the left in general. Because, let's face it, the left is clearly divided. The, Repub the Democratic Party, excuse me, is completely divided. You have the uh, neoliberals in the center and then progressives on the left and we're constantly butting heads with each other now even though this is a battle we have to have i mean we've got to hash out our differences we've got to change the direction of the democratic party regardless i mean of what what's necessary on this side while we're fighting and butting heads republicans are taking advantage of us and they're trying to ramp through their agenda they're trying to win seats that democrats are losing due to infighting so if republicans are infighting and they're butting heads and progressive and neoliberals are also butting heads, then this is good for us. This is beneficial for us because it gives us the opportunity to really hash out these differences and fight and really fight for the heart and soul of the Democratic Party while Republicans kind of do the same. Now, Republicans, 
They've needed to have this fight for a very long time because they have constantly been moving further and further and further to the right to where they're not even recognizable. I mean, even if Ronald Reagan was such a harmful Republican who implemented a ton of really bad policies that screwed over generations of people, even Reagan is not as far to the right as the modern Republican Party. He was at least reasonable when it comes to you know, issues like immigration and whatnot. So there's so many benefits to see Republicans fighting, and I absolutely love it because for a really long time now, for a couple of years, Republicans have been able to capitalize on Democratic Party infighting, but now they're getting a taste of their own medicine, and I think this is really important. So hopefully with Justice Democrats and organizations like Our Revolution, we can end this fighting uh, you know, the left will unite around progressives and progressive ideas and causes. And it looks like, you know, the momentum is on our side. Um, hopefully, it'll be our turn to take back the power we lost due to neoliberals destroying the Democratic Party. So, look, let the Republicans fight. This is great for us, and I'm going to cover it because, uh, you know, Donald Trump, whenever he makes a fool of himself, I feel compelled to cover it because he deserves nothing less. Last week, NBC News released a terrifying, albeit completely believable, report about how Donald Trump wants to increase the United States' nuclear arsenal tenfold. Now, almost immediately after this story was released, Donald Trump took to Twitter to condemn the story's authenticity, saying, quote, Fake NBC News made up a story that I wanted a tenfold increase on our U.S. nuclear arsenal, pure fiction made up to demean NBC equals CNN. And additionally, during a meeting with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he also said this about the story. No, I never discussed increasing it. I want it in perfect shape. That was just fake news by NBC, uh, which gives a lot of fake news lately. Uh, no, I never discussed. I think somebody said, I want 10 times the nuclear weapons that we have right now. Right now, we have so many nuclear weapons. I want them in perfect condition, perfect shape. That's the only thing I've ever discussed. He's such an idiot. Now, challenging the credibility of this story is one thing. And let's be clear, I don't believe that this story is fiction. I believe that NBC News was accurate in their reporting. And Donald Trump just doesn't like that the details got out. However, Donald Trump took it to an entirely new level on Twitter when he tweeted out, with all of the fake news coming out of NBC and the networks, at what point is it appropriate to challenge their license? bad for the country. Now, this is authoritarianism 101. And for a sitting president to challenge the First Amendment in such a public way and really to attack freedom of the press, this should terrify everyone, including Donald Trump's own supporters. Because when I saw this tweet, it actually sent chills down my spine. That's how scary I found it. Because it shows just how bad of a situation we're in politically. Now, Donald Trump thankfully, doesn't have the power to do that. In fact, the FCC doesn't even technically have the power to do that. Still, this type of comment from the president warrants a response from the FCC, which is an agency that oversees the regulation of news media. But up until this point, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai has been conspicuously silent on Donald Trump's tweet. Now, he finally did speak out, and I'll tell you <laughs> what he said, but 
first of all, I want to explain why it took him so long to speak out on this particular issue, something he should have addressed immediately. So, Margaret Harding McGill of Politico reports, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai is facing increasing pressure to distance himself from President Donald Trump's threats against NBC, a course of action that would risk provoking the president's Twitter-fueled wrath. Pai could confront public questions about the issue as soon as Tuesday at a telecom law event in Washington, forcing him to choose between his long-standing defense of freedom of speech and the man who made him chairman. If Pai weighs in, he risks repeating the pattern of another Trump appointee whose words and actions have drawn the president's ire and imperiled their positions in the government, such as National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. The FCC oversees licenses for individual TV stations, not networks like NBC, and telecom experts say it's highly unlikely the agency would follow through on Trump's threat, but Democrats are demanding Pai take a stand and pledge he will not judge broadcasters based on the president's approval of their news coverage. Now, during his tenure on the FCC, he's always claimed to be on the side of less government regulation, but to come out on the side of less government regulation in this instance and to come out against Trump means he has to come out against Donald Trump, who's the very person who made him the FCC commissioner, or no, the FCC chairman, excuse me, and who was enabling him to attack net neutrality. So Ajit Pai, I mean, he did release a statement, but he didn't want to release a statement because either way he was screwed. So the problem is that he could have issued a cautious statement and faced criticism for not saying enough, or take a bolder stand, which might require him to recuse himself if the FCC ends up reviewing a license issue connected to Trump's tweets. And if Donald Trump doesn't like what he says, Trump could demote Pi to commissioner and elevate another FCC Republican, Michael O'Reilly or Brendan Carr to chairman. Now, even though Donald Trump's tweet scared the shit out of me here, and it should really scare everyone who cares about the legitimacy of our democracy, I still like this component of the story because it puts Ajit Pai in a really difficult situation. On one hand, if he comes out against Donald Trump, then he risks losing his job, which would cripple his ability to pursue his corporate agenda. But if he doesn't come out against Donald Trump, then obviously he's a hypocrite because after claiming that he's against government regulation and, you know, government overreach here, well, what would be a bigger overreach than allowing the president to attack and revoke the licenses of news organizations who post stories that he doesn't agree with or doesn't like? So he did release a statement and surprisingly, he came out against Donald Trump saying, I believe in the First Amendment. The FCC under my leadership will stand for the First Amendment, Pai said in response to a question about calls from Trump to revoke the license of broadcasters who, according to the president, broadcast fake news. Under the law, the FCC does not have the authority, does not have the power to revoke license of a broadcast station based on content of a program. Pai, who was appointed by Trump as FCC chairman, said at an AT&T policy event. The FCC chairman also stressed that it is not within the FCC's jurisdiction to handle fake news. So, there you have it. Clearly, in taking this stand, this is going to piss off Donald Trump. Donald Trump could just be a petty person like he typically is and really attack Ajit Pai here, and I hope he does that. I really hope he does do that. On one hand, I don't want him attacking freedom of the press because I think that that is crucial for a thriving democracy. You can't have a democracy without a freedom of the press. Even though our press has been extremely corporatized, it's still better than no press at all. But 
I want Donald Trump to go after Ajit Pai here because if Ajit Pai doesn't feel as though he has the green light to pursue whatever he wants to from Donald Trump, then this might make him feel less inclined to pursue these really big, sweeping, controversial policies like gutting net neutrality. So, you know, we'll see how this plays out. Most likely, it will have zero impact on net neutrality, but let's cross our fingers here and hope that everyone continues to denounce Donald Trump here because, you know, attacking the First Amendment and freedom of the press, that that's that's not acceptable. I shouldn't even have to say that. And I know that Donald Trump supporters will go along with what he's saying here because they're sheep. But the freedom of the press, it's considered the fourth branch of government. And it's not literally the fourth branch of government, but it's, it's basically considered one in spirit at least because it's supposed to be a check on government power and abuse. And that's what it's doing here. NBC News, in reporting this story, they were reporting on something that I believe is true about Donald Trump. That's totally believable. And Donald Trump doesn't get to shut them down or revoke their license because he doesn't like that they're reporting on something about him. That's not the way that this works. That's not the way that democracies function. And if Donald Trump wants to rule with an iron fist, he'll have to move to another country where authoritarianism is acceptable. We currently live in a political climate where a right-wing extremist party is in control of all branches of government. We have a demagogue as our president who sympathizes with white nationalists and who was an absolute lunatic. So you would think that the opposition party, Democrats, would more so than ever do everything in their power to resist this ridiculously right-wing extremist agenda, right? But that's not really what they're doing because a couple of Democrats are actually getting cozy with Republicans and they are now being bribed and sweetened up in order for them to help Republicans pass their insidious agenda. So Burgess Everett and Annie Carney of Politico explained that Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump are reaching out to Senate Democrats as part of their courtship of Congress on tax reform, according to sources familiar with the matter. The couple is expected to host Senators Joe Manchin, Heidi Heitkamp, and Claire McCaskill on Monday evening at their Colorama home, those sources said. All three are up for re-election next year in states where President Trump is popular. Heitkamp, Manchin, and Joe Donnelly of Indiana are the Senate Democratic votes viewed as most gettable on a tax bill by the administration. They abstained from a Democratic letter laying out hardline demands for tax reform. McCaskill signed that letter and President Donald Trump called her out at a Missouri rally and said she should be defeated next year if she doesn't support tax reform. Without Democratic votes, Senate Republicans can lose only two two votes and pass tax reform, but both Manchin and Heitkamp seem open to the administration's outreach and both have appeared with President Trump in recent weeks. Now, this isn't the first time that Heidi Heitkamp has allowed Republicans to wine and dine her because she was actually taken on a private jet with Donald Trump to talk about, you know, tax reform. So this is what the resistance is doing. This is what so-called Democrats are doing. They're getting cozy with Republicans and they're allowing Republicans to butter them up and bribe them so that way they can pass tax cuts for the rich. This is the resistance. And you wonder why Democrats are wiped out at every single level of government, even if the Republican Party is so extreme. It's because you have given your base nothing to vote for. Why would they come out and vote for you if you're going to do the exact same thing that Republicans do? It makes no sense. Why go along with a rogue administration that is hurting the American people?
that only wants to cut his own taxes and taxes for his rich friends and family. Why would you go along with that when you know it's contrary to what the Democratic Party is supposed to represent? I mean, why not just change your party affiliation at this point? Joe Manchin, I think he sides more with Republicans and Donald Trump than any other Democrat. He sides more with Republicans than some Republicans probably. There are articles on 538 saying, you know, progressives would be dumb to launch a primary challenge against people like Joe Manchin because you run the risk of being too liberal and flipping that seat to a Republican. Well, what difference does it make? Because if Joe Manchin is going to give Republicans everything that they want, and a Republican would also give Republicans everything that they want, obviously, then why not at least try to flip that seat and get someone more progressive there? Because you know, if, if I'm remembering correctly, it was the state of West Virginia, where Joe Manchin is from, that Bernie Sanders happened to win all 55 counties in 2016. So if you actually do challenge Joe Manchin to the, to the left, guess what? You might actually beat him. And if the entire left-wing base of the Democratic Party is galvanized in a state like West Virginia... You might actually keep that seed, but with the way that Joe Manchin is going, you know, I don't think that he believes he has to change in order to win. Even though he's pissed off all of the lefties in West Virginia, he thinks that he needs to move further to the right in order to win re-election in 2018, when that is, that's the complete opposite strategy that you should be employing right now. Look, if you are in one of these pro-Trump red states, you need your base more than ever. And if you honestly think that you can court enough moderates, so-called moderates, to make up for the voters that you're losing on the left, well, why don't you talk to Hillary Clinton and see how that went for her when she tried that strategy in 2016? They're, they're incapable of learning their lesson. And this makes me so angry. And look, yes, it is the case that Democrats are still better than Republicans, objectively speaking, if you're a progressive. But the reason why I rail against Democrats who are getting cozy with Donald Trump, you know, Ivanka and Jared specifically, is because if you're a Democrat, then you obviously, with that title, you are claiming to stand up for working values. That's what the Democratic Party name, at least, you know, used to mean, or it should mean. So, we should expect better from the party who claims to stand up for the working class, but that's not what we're getting in these milquetoast Democrats like Claire McCaskill, Joe Manchin, and Heidi Heitkamp. They're just, they're basically Democrats in name only. So uh, we need to let them know that siding with Donald Trump on tax reform is not acceptable. So Joe Manchin's Washington, D.C. office number is 202 Two two four three nine five four. Heidi Heitkamp's number is two zero two 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 four two zero four three, and Claire McCaskill's number is two zero two 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 four six one five four. If you have one of these individuals as your senator, give them a call immediately and let them know that you don't approve of them cozying up with Republicans. They should be resisting Republicans and their harmful right wing agenda. Dick Durbin is the second highest ranking Democrat in the Senate, and he has a message for all of us progressives in 2020. If we become too liberal, if the party moves too far to the left, then that might hand Donald Trump another victory in 2020. So in other words, he's encouraging the Democratic Party to double down on the same strategy that was conducive to a Donald Trump victory in the first place. 
they are incapable of learning their lesson. But let's hear him out. So according to Andrew Kaczynski of CNN, he reports that the Illinois senator was asked on a local Chicago radio program about comments made by Democratic Representative Sherry Bustos, which the host characterized as a warning to fellow Democrats that if the party becomes too liberal, they would give Trump another term. We need to be balanced, Durbin said on Connected to Chicago on WLSAM on Sunday. She's right about that. And as a downstater like her, I understand she represents a challenging district. We don't give up on our values, but we better be sensitive, too, that there are people with more moderate views and people who may disagree with some parts of the Democratic platform as they are presented. We've got to be open to that possibility. So you could lose it by being too liberal, asked the host. You can, Durbin said. I think you can overdo it. We have to really appeal to that sensible center. It's a thin stripe now. It used to be a lot wider stripe, but it's an important and determining factor in most elections. Now again, this is the same strategy that Hillary Clinton employed in 2016. Even though, yes, it is the case that technically Bernie Sanders influenced her platform in a way and she paid lip service to progressives, she still ran to the right in the general election. She chose a running mate who was to the right of her. So Hillary Clinton, what she did was she tried to appeal to moderates, and that didn't work out for her. And see, the problem is that Dick Durbin conceptualizes the 2016 election in a way in which Hillary Clinton was too liberal to appeal to moderate voters, but in actuality, Hillary Clinton was too conservative to appeal to left-wing voters, and this demoralized her own base, who opted to stay home overall. So the problem is that Democrats always assume that you have your core base no matter what, but in moving to the right to compete with the Republican Party's insanity, they've abandoned a lot of core voters because they've just become too conservative for progressives to support anymore. They just, I mean, they don't appeal to left-wingers. So in abandoning the left-wingers, they're unable to make up the voters they're losing by courting moderate voters or so-called moderate voters. At this point, they're just right-wingers because we're polarized. This middle, the center ground, I mean, with the way that the Overton window has shifted so far to the right in this country, there are no moderates anymore. When you appeal to so-called moderates, you're just appealing to right-wingers at this point. And right-wingers don't like you. This is why Democrats have been wiped out at all levels of government across the country. You have to make sure that you acknowledge that you're not going to appeal to moderates, but you need to court one group of voters you abandoned, left-wingers, progressives. So in saying that Democrats can lose in 2020 by becoming too liberal. That's the opposite. If you don't move back to the left and reclaim the voters you lost, then yes, you will hand Donald Trump another victory. And to me, that sounds unfathomable at this point because he's so unpopular. His approval rating is down in literally every single state in the country. So for him to, for him to win in 2020, that, that's almost unthinkable to me at this point. But it is something that is a possibility if Democrats don't get their act together, which is why we have to keep the pressure on the party. We are making progress. When you look at issues like Medicare for All, we are successfully dragging them in the right direction. Now, a lot of them are still unwilling to budge, and that's fine. We're working on them. But the Democratic Party has got to realize that it has a problem in the first place in order to correct that problem. And the problem here is that they need to move back to the left and reclaim the voters they lost because you're not making up enough voters on the right to account for that deficit on the left. They need to acknowledge this, but they won't acknowledge this 
this because people like Dick Durbin, if you look at his staff and all the Democratic Party strategists that are in his in his ear getting paid millions of dollars to feed him this bad advice, you know, they, they are constantly telling him that you can't move to the left. You have to be a centrist Republican light in these relatively conservative red and purple states when that's not true. Again, I've said this once, I'll say it again. In, in these really conservative states, Voters who are left-leaning and who might actually vote Democrat, they're not going to waste their time trying to register with all of these Republican voter ID laws in gerrymandered districts to support a Democrat who will only screw them over a little bit less than Republicans. You've got to give voters something to vote for. You can't just keep betting that they're going to come out to vote against Republicans. You've got to offer a true message. And right now, when you look at public opinion polls, the momentum is on our side. Medicare for all, tuition-free public colleges and universities, on free trade. The American people are on the side of progressives. So read a poll for once and realize that you have the wrong strategy. And this should be really apparent by now because you keep losing. But I mean, some Democrats like Dick Durbin will never learn their lesson. And the fact that he is the second highest ranking Democrat in the Senate, that's really scary to me. Because if you are in a leadership position or maybe in a leadership position and you know in the in the coming years then you need to be hypersensitive to what voters want and particularly what your own base wants but dick durbin is not that so this really hasn't been a good week for tom perez actually it hasn't been a very good year for tom perez because even though he was pushed into a cushy new job as dnc chairman He's really unable to make a lot of friends here because not only is he facing criticism from DNC members now, but he's been under continuous scrutiny by progressives like myself because I don't believe that he actually cares about working Americans. I think he is there to do the bidding of the Democratic Party's donors. And something he did this week demonstrated that. So according to Jason Rode of Paste Magazine, Tom Perez, the chair of the Democratic National Committee, has appointed Atlanta native Dan Halpern to the finance committee of the party. In a party that says it's trying to be progressive, Halpern is a strange direction. As the head of Jackmont Hospitality and the GRA, Halpern has reliably opposed the minimum wage. His record thus far suggests a hostility towards the kind of worker-friendly policies that the Bernie era Dems are supposedly pursuing. It suggests Perez and Perez's backers and friends have not gotten the memo about economic justice. So at a time when Bernie Sanders was able to finally convince Senate Democrats to get on board with a $15 minimum wage, something we've fought for for years now, Tom Perez goes ahead and appoints someone who's against the minimum wage to the DNC's finance committee. That is a slap in the face to all of the work that grassroots activists have been putting in, and that's certainly a slap in the face to the party's core base. This is not what the Democratic Party is supposed to stand for. Someone who's against the minimum wage and even hostile towards the minimum wage and raising the minimum wage, that should be unacceptable. He should have just been ruled out entirely. But Tom Perez went ahead and, against his better judgment, if he has any, and appointed this guy who is against workers, who the party's supposed to represent, to the finance committee. So that's bad, but it got even worse for Tom Perez because as the DNC chairman of a party that claims to stand up for disadvantaged minorities, including the LGBT community, Rosie F. Them of Blue Jersey reports, Babs Cyperstein was kicked off the DNC by chair Tom Perez. 
Babs has been the highest ranking out transgender person in the Democratic Party, an advocate here and nationally for gay and lesbian people, and especially for trans people. It has become her life's mission and she's done it within the Democratic Party. So now to be fair to Tom Perez, we don't have a reason as to why he decided to kick out Babs, but the optics don't look good. I mean, for a party that constantly talks about the need for descriptive representation, that is, to get more diversity into powerful positions, this is something that you probably shouldn't do. It doesn't look good, because we know that Babs did not vote for Tom Perez. She actually voted for Keith Ellison to be the DNC chair. So again, we don't have an answer to this. We don't have a statement from Tom Perez or Babs. But the optics don't look good. And just to abruptly fire the highest-ranking transgender member of the DNC is very troubling. So these are things that Tom Perez is doing to piss off progressives, but progressives aren't the only ones frustrated with Tom Perez because he's actually starting to rub some DNC members the wrong way as well. So according to Amy Parnes of The Hill, she reports that as the party undergoes a facelift after last year's disastrous election, some DNC members and fundraisers say Perez hasn't done enough to improve fundraising or build enthusiasm since taking the helm in February. A lot of us feel like there's nothing exciting, nothing invigorating coming from that building and particularly from Tom Perez said one top Democratic bundler who complained that the DNC chairman didn't even coordinate the first meeting for fundraisers until several weeks ago. I've never heard from him, not once, the bundler said. If you want to show strength, you personally reach out to all of the big fundraisers. So to have a Democratic Party bundler, or in other words, a big donor, come out and criticize Tom Perez for not kissing his ass enough, well, at face value, that might make Tom Perez seem more endearing to progressives, but that's not actually the case. This really is a case of incompetence because Tom Perez has made it very clear that he's doing everything to reach out to big dollar donors. In fact, right when he was elected, we all remember, they voted down a ban on lobbyist contributions to the DNC, and Tom Perez recently spoke out about doing a better job at fundraising for the Democratic Party, i.e. making them more dependent on big dollar donors. But he's not shunning donors, as one might think, in order to raise money exclusively through grassroots causes. He is just not very good at raising money because he's not good at this job. He doesn't really have any political experience doing this, which is why someone like Keith Ellison was obviously preferable because even if Keith Ellison wouldn't be good at attracting high-dollar donors for the party, Keith Ellison has a lot of grassroots momentum. And being the DNC chairman, I mean, part of your job is to raise money. In fact, I would argue that that is the entirety of your job. And Keith Ellison would obviously be better than Tom Perez because he has momentum behind him. People believe in him. Now, of course, I still think that Sam Ronan would have been the best DNC chair, but he's moved on. Sam Ronan is running for Congress now. But Keith Ellison is someone who I think could actually make a difference as the DNC chairman. So here's what I think should happen. I think that Tom Perez, clearly, you know, he's not doing a very good job. He's not pissing, he's not, excuse me, he is pissing off everyone. He's not making inroads with progressives. He's even pissing off a lot of the DNC insiders. I think he needs to step down and allow his deputy DNC chairman, Keith Ellison, to take over for him. Because Keith Ellison actually would move the party in a more progressive direction. Is Keith Ellison perfect? No. I don't agree with him on foreign policy. But on domestic economic issues, Keith Ellison 
is just like Bernie Sanders. And I think that that would be a much needed improvement for a party that desperately needs to reform and reach out to the working class. They also criticized him for taking a teaching job after arguing that this is a full-time gig. So all around, he's just, he's taking hits from all angles. You know, the left, the center left, the donor class, and it doesn't look very good. And a couple of months ago, I predicted that if he doesn't turn things around very soon, there's probably going to be calls for him to resign. And every day it's looking more and more like that's going to be the case. And that's good for progressives. If Tom Perez resigns, no matter the reason, we get Keith Ellison, presumably, since he is the deputy DNC chairman. It's a position that was created for Keith Ellison by Tom Perez. So presumably, if Tom Perez quits, then Keith Ellison takes over, right? So this would be good for all of us. Let's let Keith Ellison have a chance because I think he'd do a lot better job than Tom Perez. Leaders of the Women's March recently announced that Bernie Sanders would be one of 42 speakers at an upcoming event. And of course, this pissed off a lot of people. And when I say it pissed off a lot of people, I'm talking about the usual suspects who hate Bernie Sanders and like to bash Bernie Sanders. I'm talking about Clintonistas. So according to Vanessa Williams of the Boston Globe, she writes that leaders of the Women's March apologized Saturday for the hurt and confusion among women who disagreed with the decision to have Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders speak on the opening night of its first national convention. Critics had protested on social media that Sanders not only had run a negative campaign against Hillary Clinton in last year's Democratic presidential primary, but also that he and his supporters continue to push the Democratic Party away from its base of women and people of color toward the concerns of the white working class. We are sorry we caused hurt and confusion for so many of you this week, read the first in a series of tweets by the Women's March. Stephanie Shriok, president of Emily's List, which works to elect Democratic women who support abortion writes, said choosing Sanders to open the convention sends the wrong message. Sanders, during last year's campaign, described himself as a democratic socialist. As such, he was often criticized for focusing on economic solutions while downplaying the role of institutional racism and sexism in social inequalities. He became a hero of white progressives but could not compete with Clinton's support among people of color and women. Sanders also lost favor with women because some of his progressive male followers were accused of harassing women and people of color on social media. The lie detector test determined that was a lie. So there's a lot going on there, but let me just say, first of all, that I do understand why they would initially object to not just Bernie Sanders, but any man headlining an event titled the Women's March, because this is supposed to be about the elevation of female voices. So I do get that. But contrary to popular belief, Bernie Sanders is not the headlining speaker. He is just one of 42 people that will be speaking in total. And furthermore, Bernie Sanders is just one of two men who will actually be speaking at this event. So you have 40 female speakers in total. So I mean, this event absolutely elevates and empowers women. And just because Bernie Sanders is the most famous speaker there doesn't mean that this event will be about him specifically. I mean, Bernie Sanders is a feminist and he will undoubtedly use this platform to elevate women and elevate feminist issues. But it's not just that a man is speaking at this event because there was also another man speaking, as I mentioned, Abdul El Sayyad, but nobody was angry about him being there. And this is because they don't want Bernie Sanders to speak for petty reasons that were stated in this article. They said Bernie ran a negative campaign against Hillary Clinton. 
In other words, they were butthurt that Bernie Sanders decided to challenge Hillary Clinton, who the establishment anointed as the party's nominee before anyone else decided to enter the race. So that's that's really what this is about. They just don't like Bernie Sanders. And as a result, they're still smearing Bernie Sanders. In fact, this article deliberately misconstrues Bernie Sanders' message by hiding behind identity politics, saying he and his supporters continue to push the Democratic Party away from its base of women and people of color towards the concerns of white working class Americans. And also, they state he was often criticized for focusing on economic solutions while downplaying the role of institutional racism and sexism in social inequalities. He became a hero of white progressives. Now, this suggests that Bernie Sanders only appeals to white males. This is factually incorrect. And the argument is that since this is the case, I mean, it's it's really a slap in the face to women of color at this event to bring on a speaker that doesn't care about them and only cares about white males. But that's not true. Bernie Sanders' message of economic justice is all-inclusive. In fact, the policies that he's pushing for, like Medicare for All, tuition-free public colleges and universities, these are policies that would disproportionately benefit people of color, specifically women of color. So his message does not just appeal to white progressives. That is actually a false establishment talking point that the likes of Joy Reid use to smear Bernie Sanders, but it's no longer true because when you look at a Harvard-Harris survey, they found that Bernie Sanders actually has the highest approval rating among women by three points, and when you look at racial demographics, he has the highest approval rating among African Americans with 73%, followed by Hispanics and Asian Americans with 68 and 62% respectively. In fact, he has the lowest approval rating among whites, contrary to popular opinion, but they still do approve of him like most people in this country, hence why he is the most popular politician in America. So their objection to Bernie Sanders speaking at the Women's March is based entirely on false pretenses. They... And when I say they, I mean Clintonistas and neoliberals specifically have tried to co-opt the Women's March and make it about Hillary Clinton and make it about them. But really, the Women's March is an all-inclusive event. It's for the entire left and center-left. I mean, some of the speakers are Nina Turner, Winnie Wong, Nomiki Kanst. This is an event for progressive women as well as center-left women. It's for all women, really. So, in trying to smear Bernie Sanders and say that he shouldn't speak here. They're trying to perpetuate the divisions in the Democratic Party. And this isn't just about he said, she said. I mean, I wanted to point out a real arbitrary instance here where people who are Hillary Clinton supporters are smearing Bernie Sanders because they're butthurt. Well, get over it. He's the most popular politician in the country. And one poll showed that he is the favorite in 2020. Now, I know it's still early, but if you truly want to defeat Donald Trump and actually defeat Republicans in 2018 and 2020, this has got to stop. It's divisive. If you're going to attack Bernie Sanders, do it for substantive policy-based reasons. You know, I, I get it if you don't like his take on foreign policy sometimes, and that sometimes he's a little bit too pro-Israel to the detriment of Palestine. I think that his free college plan should also take care of those of us who already have a massive amount of debt. I mean, there are legitimate reasons to criticize Bernie Sanders. This is not one of them. So Bernie Sanders will not be the main event. Just because he's the most famous speaker doesn't mean that he is the main event here. He's just one of 42 speakers. And the goal here is to elevate women and women's issues. And Bernie Sanders is going to obviously do that. So, I mean, I just don't see how the left can ever come together if we have people smearing Bernie Sanders 
for the most ridiculous reasons ever that are just not true. Hillary Clinton was recently in Wales to accept an honorary doctorate from Swansea University, and they were recognizing her, quote, commitment to promoting the rights of families and children around the world. Apparently, they didn't get the memo about her vote for the Iraq war, but nonetheless, you know, um, she was there, they were honoring her, and the reception that she received was probably pretty surprising to her, because when she first arrived at Swansea, she actually was met with a lot of boos. Now, it didn't stop there for Hillary Clinton, because she was also confronted by a student of Swansea University, who told her exactly what she needed to hear. <laughs> Okay, guys, thank you. Benny would have won. Only you could lose to Trump. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Now, the voice that you heard in that clip was from a biochemistry student named Kirstie Lloyd, and she was protesting Hillary Clinton at this event, saying Hillary Clinton cheated Bernie Sanders of his nomination, and all those drone strikes that killed women and children, which are illegal, contradict the reason she is being given a doctorate, which is for doing things for women and children all over the world. The main thing she's done for women and children is kill them with drone strikes. Now, believe it or not, things actually got worse for Hillary Clinton because when she sat down for an interview with Matt Free of Channel 4 News, <laughs> it, she probably didn't realize that unlike American media, the pundits in the United Kingdom actually challenge people in power. And there was all the cultural anger on race and immigration. And but there's the also anger against you. I mean, people really hated you. Well, they were you, driven to the polls by hatred of Hillary. Well, it, there, there was a lot of negativity on both sides. That's, that's true. But, but I mean, the fact that you actually lost vote share by 1% amongst women, running against an openly misogynist candidate who had bragged on tape about assaulting women, I mean, that is astonishing. Well, How is but, that possible? But let, let's look at the facts. Number one, I actually got, you're talking about white women, because yes. I won women I overall. But you went down from 44% to Obama to 43% no. amongst, no, no. Among, according to Nate Silver. Yeah. But one could say that you should have really got almost every female vote in the country after the fact that Donald Trump was openly misogynist. Yes, he was, and there's no I doubt mean, about that. How did you that? not get every female vote in the country? Well, frankly? because gender doesn't yet uh, serve as the kind of motivator for voting that race has in our country. But is it also because you, your dynastic appeal, or perhaps it was the opposite, the fact that you called Clinton, the fact that you were first lady, basically trumped any novelty, if you forgive the term, yeah. <laughs> Um, of being the first female president of the United States. Well, you know, People looked at your name and your legacy mm -hmm, more than they looked yeah. at your gender. But, I, but that doesn't explain why I led all the way through, why I won the primary by four million votes, why I was winning. We had a great convention. I was thought to have won all three debates. That doesn't explain it, Matt. So you're still blaming others more than yourself? No. I, look, I take ultimate responsibility. I don't blame others, but I think it's important that people understand what happened. It's easy to say, well, you know, she wasn't a good candidate. Then why did I lead all the way to the end? Why did I get nominated overwhelmingly? Did people lie at the polls? No, I think there were intervening events that caused people to worry, to have second thoughts. And I think it's important to go into those, as I do in the book, because Russia's not going away as a threat mm. to Western democracy. 
and what we've got to figure out is what happened in order to prevent it from happening again. Let's be blunt here. Are you saying that your election was robbed by a combination of uh, Comey's intervention at the last minute and Russian interference? I think there's a good argument that could be made to that effect. Certainly the Russian interference affected voters' decision-making. That was one of the few times I think I've ever seen Hillary Clinton squirm. And it's because people in the United States, they just don't challenge her. And it's not just Hillary Clinton who they don't challenge. They just never challenge people in power sufficiently. Every once in a while, you know, you'll see a clip where somebody finally calls out a politician in the media. But I mean, it it doesn't happen enough ever. It needs to happen more often. I mean, these types of interviews should be standard in the United States. So, you know, this whole interview with Matt Free, it was 20 minutes, but Hillary Clinton, in that short clip that I showed you, she managed to make a ton of ridiculous statements. So, again, she claimed that she is taking responsibility for losing to Donald Trump. But the problem is, after saying this, she did this before, after saying this, she goes on to cite all the external reasons for her defeat, which... <laughs> you are completely contradicting yourself by making this argument. If you're going to say that you take responsibility, then show us that you're taking responsibility and stop invoking James Comey or Russia. Take responsibility for what you did wrong. And she also states that gender doesn't serve as the same kind of motivator as race does in this country. Now, this is something that someone who only thinks about U.S. politics in terms of identity politics would say. And think of how insulting this is to President Obama. You're not crediting his victory to the campaign he ran or the policies he was pushing for. You're basically saying that Barack Obama won because he was black. Simple as that. Well, that's wrong and it's insulting. Now, she goes on to say more ridiculous things that she usually says, but it's really nice to see because here we have, you know, a, a political pundit that was actually challenging her. You lost to some extent then because you were the establishment candidate in an era of insurrection. So could one not say that if you hadn't been this ambitious the second time round, um, your ambition was the thing that stands between the world and President Joe Biden. <laughs> well, he didn't run, you know. But he would have run if you hadn't run. Well, there's no evidence of that. Um, he you would know, have look, run if you look, hadn't run. You know, I, well, I write about ambition in the book because I've never heard a man ask, be asked about his ambition. And people in our country can run for whatever reason they choose. Mm. And that should include women as well. Harvey Weinstein. Hmm. Friend of yours, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Gave lots of, you know, he gave lots of money to your campaign over time. Is Not a right? lot, but he gave. How money. much? Oh, I don't know, twelve, sixteen thousand dollars, something like that. Have you given it back or given it to charity? We're going to. Yeah, we're going to. How that long will it take? Oh, I mean, it, it, surely you can just write a check and give the money back, can't you? Well, it, it has to come out of our campaign funds. Right. So there's a little more, but it will be done. And that, that but that's not the issue. The issue really is how terrible uh, his behavior was. What is your biggest regret in one word? Losing. <laughs> Makes sense. Madam Secretary. Thank you. So when I was watching this clip, I thought, wow, imagine if people in the media here actually held politicians accountable to this level. I mean, we might actually have a completely different political landscape in this country, but since our news has been corporatized, well, really, we, we don't get this level of, um, you know, scrutiny on anyone in power. And it's just so frustrating and disheartening. But I'm glad that people in Welch are willing to hold our politicians 
to a higher standard than we're willing to hold our own politicians. I think this is really important. Now, of course, in that clip, she invoked sexism as a means to dodge a legitimate question and change the subject about Harvey Weinstein. But overall, even though neoliberals in the United States like to treat her like she's royalty and pretend as though she's the reincarnation of God, the reality is that She's just an ordinary politician. That's how most people see her around the world. She's an ordinary politician that was corrupt and had a self-serving career and did very little to help ordinary Americans. Now, to make matters worse, in a climate of legalized bribery and political corruption, she managed to find a way to stand out by being even more corrupt than her peers in Congress. And this was due mostly to the Clinton Foundation and backroom deals with oligarchs she made. In fact, the only person who's now more corrupt than Hillary Clinton is Donald Trump. So, look, she needs to stop complaining about the reasons why she lost. I mean, you see neoliberals, they often cite, you know, uh, Jill Stein and Russia, but Donald Trump had more handicaps and he still beat Hillary Clinton. He had Evan McMullen, which was literally an establishment tool that was just trying to steal the state of Utah away from Trump, and he almost did that. You had Gary Johnson, who was taking away a higher percentage of votes from Donald Trump than Jill Stein took from Hillary Clinton. So you have to you have to be real about why Hillary Clinton lost, so that way, going forward, we don't do what she did in 2020 and even 2018 and make the same mistakes that she made. But one thing about her appearance in Welsh told me that really put me at ease is that most people don't take Hillary Clinton seriously. Just because in the United States we have people that worship Hillary Clinton like Peter Dow, that's not how most people view Hillary Clinton. They look at her as an ordinary politician that's just as sleazy as everyone else in Washington, D.C. And even though some people here might idolize her, that's not the case around the world. So that tells us that we... As progressives, we're on the right side of history. We have the more compelling argument, and we're offering people around the world the winning view of politics, which is why we don't see Hillary Clinton's popping up around the world, but we do see figures like Bernie Sanders popping up around the world, like Jeremy Corbyn. It's because we're on the right side of history, and we have the winning arguments. So with that being said, I'm glad that, you know, Hillary Clinton hopefully got the reality check that she received from the student and from this interviewer, but look, if anything, if I've learned anything about Hillary Clinton, she, <laughs> she's never gonna change. Well, I think it's safe to say that we have finally reached peak Russian hysteria in America because according to one CNN report, a seemingly innocent medium was actually used covertly for nefarious reasons by the state of Russia to sow discord among the American people and ultimately tip the scales in favor of Donald Trump and against Hillary Clinton in 2016. So what platform am I talking about here? Pokemon Go. Donald J. Trump will become the 45th president of the United States. Now, I assure you that this is not satirical. This is actually a real report from CNN titled Exclusive, Even Pokemon Go Used by Extensive Russian-Linked Meddling Effort. 
Now, they're not explicitly saying that this was done at the behest of Donald Trump to help him get elected in 2016, but this is the underlying implication of the article, because the same allegedly Kremlin-linked groups that helped tip the scales in favor of Donald Trump by releasing propaganda on Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and whatnot were the same ones that did this campaign for Pokemon Go. But if you're wondering how it's the case that a game that randomly generates Pokemon for you to catch around your area can somehow be used to manipulate American politics in any way, shape, or form, apparently Pokemon Go was used to promote a so-called Don't Shoot Us campaign. Pokemon? Pokemon, Brooke. No This way. went far beyond, this, it, it did, it went far beyond Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, which is owned by Google, those three companies have been called to a public hearing next month. But this was so much bigger. This account called Don't Shoot Us, which was posing as a part of the Black Lives Matter movement, used all of these platforms to effectively create a, a, an ecosystem where these messages highlighting police brutality, trying to galvanize African-American outrage over police brutality, those would be reinforced across a, a network of platforms. And with some influence, actually, we look and we see, you know, YouTube videos that together were viewed more than 350,000 times, a Facebook page that had more than 250,000 likes. All of these linked to each other, linked through an account uh, that was registered to an address that actually turned out to be a shopping mall in Illinois. That Tumblr page promoted a Pokemon Go uh, competition where if you went to sites where there had been alleged incidents of police brutality and you named your Pokemon after those victims, for instance, naming Pikachu Eric Gardner, if you won that competition, this promotion suggested, you might win a free Amazon Prime card. So every social network me. we think about, every sort of digital platform that we think about, the Russians were trying to exploit those in order to create this network and reinforce the idea that these were legitimate accounts being run by Americans. In fact, they were being run out of the Internet Research Agency, that shadowy troll farm linked to the Kremlin that we've been talking about so much. Now, something tells me that the CNN host there wasn't really buying his argument too much, but, you know, <laughs> I can empathize with her because I didn't necessarily understand what he was trying to say there as well, because his argument didn't make sense, because Pokemon Go, I mean, to suggest that you can use this app for purposes of social engineering means that you don't understand what the app is about. You fundamentally misunderstand what Pokemon Go is about. It's a game. You can't use it that way. It's impossible. But he lays out his argument a little bit more clearer in the article. So they argue the campaign titled Don't Shoot Us offers new insights into how Russian agents created a broad online ecosystem where divisive political messages were reinforced across multiple platforms, amplifying a campaign that appears to have been run from one source, the shadowy Kremlin-linked troll farm known as the Internet Research Agency. The Don't Shoot Us campaign, the title of which may have referenced the Hands Up Don't Shoot slogan that became popular in the wake of the shooting of Michael Brown, 
used these platforms to highlight incidents of alleged police brutality with what may have been the dual goal of galvanizing African Americans to protest and encouraging other Americans to view black activism as a rising threat. Specifically, the Don't Shoot Us contest directed readers to go to find and train Pokemon near locations where alleged incidents of police brutality had taken place. Users were instructed to give their Pokemon names corresponding with those of the victims. CNN has not found any evidence that any Pokemon Go users attempted to enter the contest. You don't say. Now, CNN provides us with an image as to how Pokemon Go was used. Now, as you can see, it says, play Pokemon Go and win Amazon gift cards. So if you rename one of your Pokemon to one of the names of a victim of police brutality and then head to a Pokemon gym and become the new leader of said gym, and if that gym is near a crime scene, mind you, and once people actually see that you renamed your Hypno to Eric Garner, well, then congratulations, you just became an unwitting agent for the Russian government by spreading awareness about police brutality. That's their argument. So here's what this tells me. Russia does a better job at spreading awareness about Black Lives Matter than our own American government does. That's what this tells me. Also, the underlying assumption in this article is inherently problematic because it suggests that to spread awareness about police brutality and state-sanctioned violence against people of color, that that's somehow wrong, that it's divisive. When, if it's divisive, then that just really demonstrates the need to spread awareness about police brutality because people don't realize that when you look at African Americans and Native Americans, they are killed by police at an alarming rate in comparison to their white counterparts. So the fact that you would even suggest that this is divisive is, I think, offensive to me. And this finding here, I think, is completely benign. It makes no difference uh, in American politics. It made no difference in the 2016 election. In fact, the only way Pokemon Go had any influence on the 2016 election would have been indirectly, and it would have been because of this clip. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. That was the only feasible way Pokemon Go would have had <laughs> any impact on the 2016 election. And it wasn't because of Pokemon Go, it was because of Hillary Clinton. And in invoking Pokemon Go, she was trying to make herself more appealing to millennials when it came off as pandering, and it made her even less likable. So again, if Pokemon Go influenced the election because of that clip, it was because of Hillary Clinton, not Pokemon Go. So this, I mean... This is a story that is a complete joke. I mean, when you look at the article headline, it says CNN exclusive, meaning that they broke the story and they were they were proud that they broke this story. They have the exclusive scoop on how Pokemon Go was used to sow discord among the American people. I mean, this this makes no sense to me. And in the same week, you have headlines about how Hillary Clinton is comparing the Russian meddling to a cyber 9-11. Now, not only is that idiotic, especially when we see stories being released about so-called Russian meddling like this in the same week, but the underlying implication is that if this was an attack that is comparable to 9-11, which is incredibly offensive, then what should we do about it? Well, we should respond in a way that is comparable to the attack on 9-11. We should perhaps attack Russia. So look, in the end, I think that 
this story, I mean, I'm embarrassed, honestly, because think about if you're not an American citizen and if you if you see this story, how that makes us come off to the world. They think we're a joke. They're laughing at us. We are making ourselves the laughing stock of the world with stories like this. Pokemon Go cannot be used to influence elections. It's a game. It's an application that is not social in any way, shape, or form. The only way it might be social is if, you know, in, in using this app, you meet people at a gym nearby, but I mean, nobody's really even playing it. By the time the 2016 election hit, I think most people were done with it. So, I mean, come on. This, this is so embarrassing, but I really, you know, part of me kind of wants... Rachel Maddow and other neoliberals to start talking about Pokemon Go and how it was used to meddle in American affairs because I just need a laugh because in hearing these people talk about something that they clearly don't understand, it's just funny and it proves what a joke they are. In an op-ed for The Guardian, Bernie Sanders shed light on a political issue in this country that just doesn't get enough attention. And that is money in politics. So in this article, he slams the Republican budget and their tax proposal because it is brazenly corrupt. And he talks about how the Republican Party's donors are able to pull the strings in the Republican Party specifically and get them to do what they want and pass policies that are beneficial to them. Bernie Sanders argues the Republican budget, which will likely be debated on the floor of the Senate this week, is the Robin Hood principle in reverse. It takes from those in need and gives to those who are already living in incredible opulence. Donald Trump and Republican leaders claimed their plan would provide a big league tax cut for the middle class. Nothing could be further from the truth. According to the nonpartisan tax policy center, by the end of the decade, nearly 80% of the tax benefits of the Republican plan would go to the top 1% and 40% would go to the top one-tenth of 1%. Meanwhile, while Republicans want to give a $1.9 trillion tax break to the top 1%, they are proposing massive cuts in programs that working-class Americans desperately need. This budget cuts Medicaid by more than $1 trillion over 10 years, which would throw some 15 million Americans off of the health insurance they currently have. Further, this budget does what the Republicans have not yet attempted to do in their previous healthcare legislation, and that is to make a $473 billion cut to Medicare, despite Trump's campaign promises not to cut these programs. Why are the Republicans bringing forth such an absurd budget that in almost every instance is diametrically opposed to what the American people want? The answer isn't complicated. Follow the money. Today, we have a corrupt campaign finance system that enables multi-billionaires, along with some of the most powerful CEOs in America, to contribute many hundreds of millions of dollars to elect Republican candidates to represent their views. As a result, the top 1% has been able to rig the political system to favor them at the expense of virtually everyone else. Here are just a few examples. The Republican budget would give the richest family in America, the Walton family of Walmart, a tax cut of up to 52 billion by repealing the estate tax, a tax that only applies to multimillionaires and billionaires. But if you are a lower income senior citizen, you and over 700,000 other families may not be able to keep your home warm in the winter because of a cut of about 4 billion to the low income home energy assistance program. At a time when the middle class is shrinking and over 40 million Americans are living in poverty, this budget must be defeated and replaced with a plan that reflects the needs of the working families of our country, not just the wealthy, the powerful, and large campaign contributors. Now, Bernie goes on to lay out other examples as to how 
this benefits the wealthy and specifically how Donald Trump benefits from repealing the estate tax. I believe he'd save himself or earn $4 billion. So the way that money in politics controls everything is something that has to be talked about more frequently in this country because really, when you look at the policy positions that politicians take, nine times out of 10, it's going to be based on what their donors allow them to. So when you look at Democrats, for example, a lot of them refuse to support Medicare for All because they take campaign contributions from health insurance companies. You see Republicans often pushing for war because they take campaign contributions from defense contractors. And political corruption is such a huge issue in America. There's a 2014 Princeton study by Dr. Gillens and Page that found that the American people aren't represented by politicians. They have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes. So it's the preferences of the elites and special interests who actually has a statistically significant impact on policy outcomes. And when you live in a country like that, you're not living in a democracy any longer. It's an oligarchy. So we've got to take our country back from oligarchy. And I think that we have to start by really tying all of these issues to money and politics because corruption is a huge issue in this country. And Bernie Sanders is probably the one politician that's actually speaking out about this particular issue and it's saying follow the money. I think that's a really powerful statement for a sitting senator to make, especially the most popular senator in the country. I want to take a moment to talk about a new poll released by Zogby Analytics. And if you are a burner and you're still feeling the burn in 2017, then this is a poll that I think is particularly important for you. So when you look at this poll, it's about the 2020 Democratic primaries. And as you will see here, Bernie Sanders is currently leading with 28%. And then in second place, we have not sure being the second highest option. In third, we have Joe Biden with 17%, Elizabeth Warren with 12%, Mark Zuckerberg with 7%, which is embarrassingly high. We have Kamala Harris with 6%, Kirsten Gillibrand with 3%, Andrew Cuomo with 3%, Amy Klobuchar with 1%, and also Terry McAuliffe with 1% as well. Now, this is very early, so we are not able to really take anything away from this other than the fact that this is just the gauge of where the country is at right now. But when I saw this poll, initially, I was glad to see that Bernie Sanders is currently in the lead. But these types of polls, I think, can become problematic because it gives progressives this false sense of security. It tells us that we really don't have to fight very hard in 2020 because Bernie Sanders is already leading. He's the most popular politician in the country. He has the most name recognition now, aside from uh, Joe Biden. So really, I don't have to work that hard. But understand that this does not mean that the fight will be easy. And look, we've got to I've said this before that I don't want to talk about 2020 and I don't like talking about 2020 because it's still three years away. But if we really want to win and defeat Donald Trump in 2020, then progressives have got to hit the ground running. And I don't want us to become complacent. And really, the biggest number here that is the most telling is that 23% where it says that many voters, almost a quarter of them are not sure because this tells us that all of those, you know, all 23% of those voters, they could go to an establishment candidate or they could go to 
um, a progressive like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. But to me, that communicates to me really that they're looking for someone new. So here's what this tells us. One, this doesn't take into account any shenanigans that the DNC may pull. And this also doesn't tell us about contenders and how well they may do who haven't even signaled that they might be running. It doesn't account for Cory Booker. It doesn't account for a potential Hillary Clinton run, even though she said she's not going to run. I still think that that's something that you should consider. It doesn't account for Tim Kaine. So there's a lot of variables that we have to take into account. So know that, yes, this is a good sign, but whenever you see these polls, especially this far out, Please don't become complacent and think that we don't have to still fight. We're going to have the fight of our lives on our hands. And I think the fight's probably going to be even more hard this time because now that the Democratic Party establishment knows how powerful Bernie Sanders is and the progressive movement has become, they're going to try to pull out all the stops. We have to be cognizant of the reality of the situation and we can't get too secure. We can't allow these polls to let us feel as though everything's going to be okay and Bernie Sanders is guaranteed to win. We've got to fight like hell for Bernie Sanders in 2020. And currently, what we can do is show strength by promoting progressive policies like Medicare for all, like net neutrality, like tuition-free public colleges and universities. Because if we promote these ideas that Bernie Sanders will inevitably run with in 2020, if we could boost their popularity by just having a conversation about it and spreading the word about it, that makes us all the more powerful. So these polls, yes, they are they're a good sign at the current state of affairs in American politics, but anything can happen, times can change, and we have to not become complacent because of polls like this. So yes, it is good news, and I, I want to share this with you because I want you, for once, to feel optimistic when you finish watching a Humanist Report video. <laughs> I know that's really rare, but understand that in no way am I trying to let you know that we're secure here, and progressives have this in the bag come 2020 or even 2018. If we ever want to be successful and actually take power and really take control of two-thirds of Congress, which is the ultimate goal, so we could just push through any agenda we want, this is what we've got to do. We've got to continuously fight. We are never going to be able to just sit back and have all of our policies that we want codified into law. It's always going to be a consistent battle because what we stand for, it's antithetical to what the industry that bankrolls politicians stands for. They don't like our agenda, so we're never going to have it easy. So we always have to fight, and that's really the main takeaway here. So understand that this is, this is good news, but... It doesn't mean we don't fight. A few weeks ago on the podcast, I talked about a televangelist named Jim Baker. And unbeknownst to me at the time, I may have unexpectedly gotten myself into a little bit of trouble with God. <laughs> so here's what I said about Jim Baker specifically. In a discussion on his show, Jim Baker, another prosperity preacher, was talking about how Christians would respond if Donald Trump got impeached. And <laughs> the clip was insane. Uh, you know, it speaks for itself. Jim Clement, before he died, he prophesied they will be screaming impeachment, impeachment, but it You're will not kidding. happen. That's true. If it happens, there will be a civil war in the United States of America. So is that a threat? Are you trying to incite violence on your show? Are you trying to encourage all of your Christian viewers to take up arms if Donald Trump is impeached? Is that what you're doing? Because it seems like it, and really Christians should be the last people in favor of a civil war, because if you're truly a Christian, 
then you should believe in Jesus's message, which is, uh, turn the other cheek. So hypothetically speaking, if I wanted to slap Jim Baker across the face, then as a Christian, he should turn the other cheek and allow me to slap him again. Now, Jim Baker has a message for haters like myself, or more specifically, God has a message that he's delivering through Jim Baker for haters such as myself. I'm so sick of people saying, well, that prophecy didn't come true, true, true. true. I got 31 things from God. Mm -hmm. How many years ago now? You got, you got it in 1999. You delivered it. You delivered it 1999, New Year's Eve, going into 2000. Mm -hmm. And you know, I keep a copy of it. And I, the people almost everyone. fell out when I gave it. Yeah. They were overwhelmed when I yes. gave it. Mm -hmm. And yet, 9-11 was yeah. in this. Right. It didn't seem possible. In a year and a half it took before that happened. That's right. But here's the thing. Rick Joyner told me this, and listen to me, church, listen. When God says something to you, you don't always know the exact time it's going to happen. And stop beating up the prophets because God says, whoa, unto you when you beat up on the prophets. Mm-hmm. God is speaking to his people. If you take time to read this book, you'd realize that everybody in this book talked with God. 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 Even Satan and donkeys talk to God. Right. That's right. That's right. The only ones that probably aren't talking to God these days are some mean people in America mm. and people who just are anti-Christ. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to hear it, just shut me off. Especially you folks that monitor me every day to try to destroy me. You just, just go away. You don't have to be there. You don't have to hear it. But one day you're going to shake your fist in God's face mm. and you're going to say, God, why didn't you warn me? And he's going to say, you sat there and you made fun of Jim Baker all those years. I warned you, but you didn't listen. <laughs> so he is angry that people are making fun of him because he continues to come out with these prophecies that are proven wrong. And I made fun of him for prophesizing that Christians would take up arms against the rest of the country if Donald Trump was impeached. So presumably I'm looped in to God's wrath there. And uh, I'll read this quote again. One day you're going to shake your fist in God's face and say, God, why didn't you warn me? And he's going to say, you sat there and you made fun of Jim Baker all those years. I warned you, but you didn't listen. <laughs> Imagine feeling so important that you think God the <laughs> all-knowing, all-powerful being that created the universe would come to your defense. Imagine, <laughs> imagine being that narcissistic, right? Well, look, if God exists, which there's no scientific evidence to prove that he does exist, but if he does exist, that's not how that conversation would go. I would imagine it would go something like this. When you get to heaven, Jim, God is going to ask you, well, Jim, I'm wondering why you didn't read Matthew 19, 24, which says, 
I would tell you, again, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Hmm. Now, seeing that your net worth is $600,000, I think by most ordinary American standards who don't even have $500 in the bank account, that would make you rich. So if you're rich, how do you expect to get into heaven? I mean, that, that same book that you held up, that was a verse I picked out from that book. So what are you going to say to God, Jim Baker, when you get to heaven, if it exists, which it probably doesn't, it most certainly doesn't because there's no evidence for it, but what are you going to say to God, Jim? Even though, you know, normal, rational thinking people like myself and my viewers will watch Jim Baker and they'll think, man, this guy is crazy. The problem is that there's still a lot of people that think what he's saying is the truth when really he's a fraud. He is taking advantage of all of his listeners and watchers. He's exploiting them. He's using religion to exploit them for his right-wing agenda and to make himself rich. So, Jim Baker, um, I think that the only person that is going to have to answer to God, if God does exist, is going to be you. So, uh, I hate to break it to you, Jim, but if God does exist, he doesn't care about you. There are bigger issues that God is probably concerned about right now. Not to mention, you know, all the issues we have on Earth. But I mean, if there are other planets out there, I'm sure that they're facing a lot worse issues than we're facing here. I mean, I'm sure there's some civilizations that God created that, you know, they are orbiting a dying star. So God is trying to save them, save an entire species from going extinct. So he's probably worried about those issues and not people who poke fun at you, which... It's warranted. You make it easy. I wanted to take a moment to talk about the deadliest terror attack to ever occur in the country of Somalia, specifically in Mogadishu, when two car bombs went off. And the amount of destruction is just, it's unthinkable. I don't know how else to describe it. So Lena Masri of ABC News reports two powerful truck bombs in the heart of Somalia's capital, Mogadishu, on Saturday killed at least 300 people and injured about 300 more in what authorities call the deadliest attack in the country's history. Funerals have begun for the killed who have been found but the death toll from the attacks is expected to rise as rescue workers continue attempts to pull victims from the rubble. The government has blamed the Al-Qaeda-affiliated Al-Shabaab group for the attacks, but the extremist group has not yet commented. Hospitals are overextended and struggling to treat victims, many of whom sustained severe burn injuries. Volunteers have been providing first aid and have transferred many wounded to nearby medical points. Five Red Crescent volunteers were killed in the explosion and several others injured. Among the killed were also 15 primary school children who were on a school bus at the time of the attack. Abdul Qadir Adam, the director of an ambulance service, told the Associated Press. Eh, 
ودحل نغضي وفربنا لما توينا دعبي So, I have really nothing to offer in terms of commentary. Just, just heartbreak. And I, I typically don't just cover tragic events like this for the sake of doing so. But I don't see much attention being paid to this issue in American media. And I feel responsible uh, in letting people of Somalia know that we're not going to let them be forgotten and that we care about them. Because they're human beings and they deserve to um they deserve our attention at a time like this um 300 people 15 primary school children was uh man just know that um we're not going to forget about you and hopefully the rest of the world doesn't either and they don't just look past this tragedy because that would be that would be bad but yeah this was unthinkable well, that's all I got for you guys this week on The Humanist Report. Thank you all so much for watching. If you've made it this far in the episode, and a special shout-out to all of our listeners on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, I recognize you guys as well, and I want to thank you for listening. So, as usual, I want to send a shout-out and a thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. Um, you guys are you're crucial to the show's existence, so thank you all so much. Uh, yeah, let's wrap up. Uh, I'll see you guys next week. Take care.